Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Regardless of what you think of Biden, and even regardless of what you think of Zelensky as an individual, this is a cause that is important to support. Any attack upon a nation's sovereignty is something that needs to be repelled. And therefore, we've got to make a distinction between the principle of national self-determination and the way in which that principle is sometimes uh, uh, exploited by certain sections of the Western world. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Frank Frady. Frank, welcome to the show. I'm really delighted to be talking to you again. So, Frank, let's talk about Ukraine. That's what really why I want you on. It's now one year since Russia launched its invasion. I think it's around six months since you wrote, wrote your book about the war, your quickfire responsive book, which was called The Road to Ukraine, How the West Lost Its Way. So a lot has obviously happened over the past year. And I just want to start off by getting you to take the temperature of where things are at right now. Has the war gone in the kind of direction you expected it to? Has the Western response mapped out in the way that you expected it would? Or have you been surprised by some developments? How do you see things standing right now in the Russia-Ukraine conflict? Well, uh, in the book, I made the point that this is a war that's not going to end anytime soon. And I said that this is a, a never-ending war that's going to be like a typical frontier war that will continue for a long, long, long time for the very simple reason that neither side can afford to lose, but then neither side can really win. And I think that mm. dynamic is still very much in play. And every week, every day, you hear different stories about Russian advance, about Russian defeat, about Ukraine being exhausted, about Ukrainian resilience. And it basically is like a ping pong, a slowly played ping pong game uh, that's occurring just because of the very nature of this kind of a war. Nothing much surprises me except for one thing, which is uh, I expected that the Western response would be one that would try to unify around Zelensky and try to gain moral credibility and legitimacy by supporting Ukraine almost in a parasitical way piggyback on the back of Ukraine. And I also expected that uh, this would be a turn into a kind of a proxy war eventually, where the Ukrainians are doing all the fighting. They're, they're basically dying on the battlefield uh, in order to, uh, I suppose, to uh, kind of uh, carry out the interests, particularly of the United States. But what I didn't expect was that uh, the incredible investment of resources Mm. Uh, that has been made in the war by America in particular and also following on the United States by, by Europeans, whereby they're increasingly have almost sought, almost lost sight of what it is that they're trying to do, almost lost sight of their interest. And they seem to be almost kind of performing on this stage 
each of them egging on the other one to provide tanks. No, 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 we'll provide airplanes. No, 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 we'll provide something else. And it's almost like what you have is like this very slow march, a very, very slow march that is gradually pushing more and more people onto the battlefields of, 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 of the area, almost unthinkingly, because, of course, as you know, once you begin to supply that kind of weaponry, there's only a small, you know, a really small amount of space left before you and your people uh, become implicated in the, in the, directly in the physical battle. And it's no longer just the Ukrainians who are fighting the Russians, but directly you, you yourself become involved in it. So I, I really want to come back to this issue of resources and the possibility that there's a disparity between the West's pumping of resources into Ukraine and its lack of any sense of why it's doing that and, and what the purpose is and, and what the interests might be. I think that's such an interesting contrast and, and contradiction. But before we come on to some of that, I did want to just go back to the beginning a little bit, just back to this time last year when the war broke out. And just to remind ourselves how surprised people were. Now, we at Spiked were surprised and we'd even published a couple of pieces in the run-up to the invasion saying, look, there's not going to be a war, uh, relax, chill out. I think there was an element where, because there had been, there has been so much anti-Russian propaganda and thinking in Western circles for a long time, and there have been so many attempts by Western officials and intellectuals to rehabilitate the Cold War that one became rather cynical of any claim that Russia was about to take this kind of action. And, and so we kind of made ourselves slightly blind to the possibility that that was about to happen. But then more broadly across the intellectual elites in the West, and you write about this at length in your book, that there was a surprise. I mean, on one hand, they expected it because they think Russia is evil and does evil things. And so they were anticipating it in a way but you talk about their surprise at the fact that history is not actually a done deal and that history could come back in the way that it did. And, and a, a conflict that is between Russia and Ukraine that has got so many historical components and so much historical importance could return to Europe, a country that some of these people believed was free from war, had, be, had been unified. War is something that happens far away. It's not something that happens here in the West, certainly not in Europe. So could you just talk a little bit about the importance of what you refer to as the revenge of history and the fact that history made a very rude and interesting intervention into our world this time last year? Why do you think it's significant to talk about the importance of history in relation to this conflict? Well, history is important in two very important respects. On the one hand, it is important because many of the tensions that uh, emerged during the Cold War and, and in its immediate aftermath have never been resolved. The fact that uh, you now have this Russia question where Russia has been displaced as a superpower, but it's still a formidable regional power. But at the same time, it's being confined by geopolitical realities from the West to such an extent that they feel extremely frustrated and not being able to find their place in the world. So I think uh, history has made the Russia question the main question, geopolitical question of our time, uh, pretty much in the way that the German question played a role in the interwar period. So that's the first important thing about history. But the second important thing is that the 
geopolitical establishment in the West, the people that run our foreign affairs, have become totally detached from, from the past, from their history. They've adopted a set of values that, that is uh, extremely inimical to understanding how the world works, where, for example, they gradually become estranged from things like national interests. Uh, they become estranged from understanding the, the fact that uh, geopolitics is not a dirty word, that international relations does involve conflicts and, and, and promoting national values. And because of that, as a result of that, they've, they've basically uh, deluded themselves into believing that we entered this new era where conventional wars in particular, and in particular in Europe, were unthinkable, and where they believed that in, in many respects, many of the uh, uh, conflicts and tensions uh, that existed in the previous century have been marginalized to the periphery of the Western world. So you can have wars in Libya and Syria, but not anywhere, not in Europe, not in, not in America. And I think that when you have that kind of fairly naive outlook on the world, it does undermine your capacity to anticipate events. And I suppose in many respects what happened was that Russia felt that on the one hand, the Western uh, establishment was relatively uh, weak and unable to really act upon its interest and would not know how to respond to a real challenge, having seen what happened in Afghanistan and in many, many other places. And at the same time, Russia also felt that they had no choice but to do something, make some kind of a gesture in light of the pressure that they felt they were being put under. I think that the reason why people were surprised is because people felt that the kind of gesture that Russia would make would stop short of actually invading the Ukraine again. I I didn't think people expected that. Uh, Now that we look back, it makes perfect sense because uh, the one thing that a lot of people didn't understand was Russia knew since the uh, the revolution in the Ukraine, uh, the West has been strengthening the, the military capacity of the Ukrainians, that the West has been playing more and more of an activist role within Ukraine itself, thereby uh, escalating the kind of threat that Russia uh, sort of was under and, and uh, felt that they were under. And I think that, that kind of uh, provocation as they saw it must have been of sufficient uh, uh, weight to get them to react in this kind of silly, heavy-handed, and ultimately self-destructive kind of a way. I think the one of the important points you make about historical amnesia in your book on Ukraine is, I think some people understand historical amnesia simply to mean an ignorance of history, not understanding what happened in the past and being ignorant of anything that really that happened before the Second World War, that comes to be the tends to be the cutoff point for how we think about history. Everything before that was bad and to be frowned upon, and everything since that is is usually pretty much okay. Um, but historical amnesia is not just an ig- ignorance of history, is it? It has a genuine impact on how on our capacity to, to understand how the world works and how things change. So you talk in the book about how historical amnesia means that people lose all sense of the connection between historical continuity and change. So the way in which things change in the present, as well as the way in which which things changed in the past. Given that we tend to live in the West under some pretty year zero regimes, you think about the European Union, which sees itself as the perfect embodiment of politics and everything prior to that in Europe was terrible. 
Or if you think of the way in which so many um, woke activists or institutions in the West are continually trying to tear down historical monuments, cast a shadow over the past, that kind of year zero mentality doesn't only mean that there's a growing ignorance of what happened in the past, but it actually makes it harder for us to understand the present and where things might go in the future. Yeah, because what you end up with is what I call presentism. Mm. Very essentially, you become detached from the past, the, the, the starting point of, of, of human experience and of, of the influences that still are very much in play. But also you become so obsessed about the here and now that you don't really grasp the possibilities uh, of, of the future, that the future poses for us. And I think that what, one of the things that has occurred is that when you have this presentist uh, political outlook, you adopt what's, what, what's often be called short-termist politics, where you essentially go from one election cycle to another. You go from, you know, kind of uh, superficial policy to the next. And as a result of that, you, you never really have to address any of the existential questions that are posed by us, that society kind of throws up. And that leads to a situation where you become disoriented. And the point I make in the book is that what you have as a result of your, your loss of continuity with the past is you become, on the one hand, disoriented, not really knowing your place in the world and what the interest of your nation is, which is very serious when you're running foreign affairs. It's, it's all very well to not know your place in the world if you're running a parish council, but if you're running a, a nation, then that can have very big uh, destructive consequences but also, as you become disoriented, you become what I call in the book morally disarmed, where essentially you don't, you don't have the capacity to mobilize your society, to stand up and, and, and fight for the values and, 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 and the interests that are necessary for your community to continue on in its old ways. So I want to ask you about the relationship between Western weakness or Western disarray and the action that Russia took a year ago when it invaded Ukraine. You've already touched on the fact that Russia seemed to sense that there was a, a weakness in the West, which maybe made it a bit more cocky in the decision that it took and, and its willingness to push into Ukraine in a way that lots of people didn't quite expect. In the book, you also talk about, following on from this history point, you also talk about how one of the great Western confusions in relation to Russia is that Russia seems to take its history seriously. Putin talks about a golden age of Russia. There is a sense that part of the, the purpose of his war in Ukraine is to, is to somehow reestablish that golden age, re recreate that historical momentum that Russia felt it once had. And you talk about how the West's own historical amnesia contrasts to this seeming valuation of history that there is in Russia. So just looking at the relationship between a West that has abandoned its history, which seems uncertain of what it stands for, which seems to lack the virtues of courage and um, a willingness of people to, to fight for what they believe in, certainly in a militaristic sense. How much of a contribution do you think those Western trends made, at least to Russia's willingness to do what it did when it did it? Do you think there was a direct relationship between those? Do you think it, Russia was playing off Western weakness as an opportunity to try and push, solve what it sees as the Ukraine problem? Yeah, I think there was a very clear calculation there because uh, Russia has seen a West that always puts economics in front of national interests. You know, Russia knows that 
you know, if, if, if their oligarchs have got some money, then the British and the French and the Germans welcomed them. Russia knew that uh, uh, the West was quite happy to couple its energy needs to that of Russia without thinking of its strategic kind of consequences. They also knew that the West has been involved in a whole string of foreign policy failures that go back from Afghanistan all the way to Syria, all the way back to Libya, and even, and even beyond that. And they have seen how uh, the one thing that the, the West lacks is staying power. You know, sort of, it, it's not really prepared to get stuck in and stay and fight for anything that uh, is seriously important in, in, in terms of global geopolitical uh, sort of interest. So under those circumstances, it figured that you know, the West probably might respond by uh, you know, boycotting Russian sporting events or uh, respond by putting in some mild sanctions here and there. But they didn't actually think that the West would invest so many, uh, so much resources into this war to uh, ensure that Ukraine had enough resources to be able to, you know, sort of prevent the Russian invaders from achieving any of their objectives. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Let's talk a bit about the West's role in Ukraine and its investment of so many resources. And it's such an interesting part of the discussion because we've seen Zelensky has visited Britain very recently, where he openly called for fighter jets. And um, we know that the Biden administration has given a huge amount of resources and European countries have as well. I want to tease out what I think might be a bit of a contradiction in this, because you talked about how you expected the war would become a proxy war. And you can see that quite clearly, the way in which so many Western powers are latching on to the Ukraine crisis for various different reasons. And the um, the investment of so many resources is an indicator of that. But I wonder if it's a proxy war as we might traditionally have understood it, because a proxy war traditionally would entail an element of geopolitical nous, an element of understanding one's own interests. And therefore, you would engage a certain side in a conflict and provide them with weaponry in order that they might advance your geopolitical interests while fighting for what they consider to be their own interests. But is that what's actually happening in Ukraine? Or might the investment of so many resources, tanks, fighter jets, planes, uh, weaponry, might that actually be a reflection of the West's lack of geopolitical mouse and the fact that it doesn't quite know what it wants from the Ukraine conflict, but it does know that it wants to rattle the Russian bear 
maybe push Russia back a little bit. It has a sense that it might want to do that. So is it a proxy war in the way that they were fought in the past, or is it something a bit more murky than that? I don't know if I use the word murky. It's unique in the sense that it's a war that begins essentially as a war between Russia and Ukraine. And it still is that war. There's two wars going on, one for uh, Ukraine's national sovereignty. And at the same time, there's also a second war, which is a proxy war, principally between the United States and Russia and the EU countries joining in that now. Now, what's interesting about this proxy war, and I think that's something that is really worth looking at, is the question of why is it that at a certain point uh, the West has decided to pile in in a way that is you know, quite unexpected. And I think the reason for that is, is because contrary to their expectations, Washington realized that this is an opportunity that they never dreamed of, uh, almost like uh, a question of good luck, chance, mm-hmm. uh, because they saw that Russia was much weaker than they, than they supposed. They, they expected the Russian army to just basically wipe out Ukraine in a matter of days. When they saw that, on the contrary, that really wasn't happening, it provided them with this unexpected bonus, which they greedily seized. And uh, in addition to seeing that they could uh, give Russia a hard time, for the first time, they also saw that this could be a medium to which America could reestablish its uh, global preeminent role. Uh, It could reestablish NATO as no longer a zombie organization, which it was beforehand, but now something that, uh, you know, expressed a kind of Western unity. And they could unify Europe behind America and uh, in a way that was unthinkable. And that was entirely not something that was pre-planned. It wasn't a conspiracy to do this. It wasn't something that they geopolitically figured out. Mm. It just so happened that uh, as a result of unexpected circumstances, it gave them this opportunity now, the, the, the thing is, is that uh, outwardly it looks like, you know, they've done really well out of this. America is in a very strong place at the moment because of the war. Biden seems like a credible president for the, you know, for the first time in, in, in a long, long time. Europe seems, you know, fairly united, uh, sort of at least outwardly. You have so-called Western unity that seems to be not unlike that, of, that they enjoyed in the Cold War. But when you dig deeper, when you see actually what's really going on, what is evident is that this uh, unity and this uh, ascendancy of of the United States has created a situation that uh, leads to its own unmaking because the the solidarity that they continually advertise is a solidarity that, that can only last in certain circumstances for a very short period of time. And it's unlikely to be the case that going forward, they're going to be able to reap the benefits that they imagine that that they're going to do. And at the moment, because they don't realize this, they're very much like uh, investors, you know, sort of who are investing at the top end of the bull market, imagining that the shares can only go up and up and up, not realizing that very, you know, very, very soon the tide will turn. And we're already seeing signs of that. Uh, uh, and that became very clear at the Munich Security Conference last week, where there was all this sense of nervousness and disorientation, where people feel that, you know, uh, that we've gone a little bit too far, uh, that we've got to basically stop this before it becomes a much more dangerous place than we ever imagined. 
So there are all these kind of hesitations now under the surface, which I think are going to uh, lead to uh, uh, potentially a, a greater degree of global fragmentation that we've experienced any time since the Second World War. I get a very strong sense that that, that is coming. And I think precisely because it was quite an opportunistic intervention in the sense, as you say, chance provided them with this opportunity to um, galvanize themselves to a certain extent and to throw their weight around in the international sphere in a way that they hadn't been able to do for some time. Uh, it's precisely that nature of it, which means it could unravel quite quickly and, and those uh, underlying tensions could come to the surface in a possibly quite destructive way. Uh, I want to, just on the theme of solidarity, I did want to push that with you a little bit, because I think you're right to describe how, at the moment at least, there does seem to be a fairly new element of Western solidarity, nations coming together in a way that we haven't quite seen since the end of the Cold War. I think that's, that's true, even though that's that's probably very fragile. But in Western discussion at home, I have noticed a palpable shift in how people are thinking about Ukraine. So, for example, there have been polls showing that lots of young British people and lots of young people across Europe no longer think that it's worth supporting Ukraine. They think it's a bit of a folly. They have other concerns like the energy crisis and so on. Um, also, at the same time, there is this huge growth online of a very profound cynicism about Zelensky, um, particularly amongst, I don't know what you would call it, the post-COVID right or something, the online right, where there is this exceptional hostility towards Zelensky, who's seen as a WEF puppet. He's seen as a very destructive player. He's seen as some, he's, he's the welfare queen, stealing money from Americans, stealing money from Europeans and using it to fight a war that's killing loads of people. It feels very cynical. I can understand that it's possibly a response to Western liberals' um, beatification of Zelensky as a saint of international affairs. I can understand that it might be a reaction against that, but it does seem to be growing its own momentum, this uh, incredible online hostility towards Zelensky and to the whole idea that we should support this corrupt nation that is is, is fighting back against Russia. What have you made? Uh, so beneath the Western states, which are opportunistically intervening in this, in this theatre, what have you made of the discussion at home about how people seem to be moving slightly away from solidarity with Ukraine into something else? I think there are a number of different strands running parallel with each other, which are in many respects very much revealing of Western society. So on the one hand, you have a what I would call a genuine anti-war movement that's emerged. Mm. And you can see a growing number of demonstrations in many parts of the world, including Germany, for example. Mm. And that's just basically a kind of quasi-pacifist, a quasi, you know, I couldn't be bothered to fight for my country kind of reaction that you always had. And that's now coming, uh, becoming stronger and stronger, especially as people can see the possibility of a greater ex escalation in the war. You then have also uh, the reaction, and this comes out of the uh, polarized landscape uh, that is, comes in the wake of uh, identity politics. But a lot of people that really don't like the culture wars that's being waged by the, the woke section of the ruling elites tend to almost adopt a mirror image hostility to it. So they basically put a plus sign where they have uh, against uh, Biden's negative sign and vice versa. So there's a, you know, if, if the Biden likes Ukraine, then that's going to be bad. 
Mm. Uh, and, and in a very unthinking way that you got this kind of anti-Ukrainian sentiment or suspicion, skepticism towards Ukraine by people who, you know, in a sense, feel frustrated with the way in which the cultural elites run the show and, and, and force down people's throats what they ought to believe. And I can understand that. I, I think I understand that kind of reaction. I just think it's, it's uh, unfortunate, even tragic, that, that people don't stop and think uh, instead of just merely reacting. So you got that kind of sentiment. And then more, and the third, uh, and now a relatively new sentiment, is really to do with economics and just the feeling that uh, you know, we have all kinds of economic problems, energy issues, and everything else. And there is kind of more in sorrow, you know, rather than in anger. We, you know, we can only give you so much kind of an attitude that's kind of gradually emerging. I suppose something like the French Macron kind of reaction, you know, sort of uh, personifies that. So, yes, you do have these different strands coming through. And uh, we need to be very clear because, you know, we have to explain to people that these reactions are uh, not by any means, healthy reactions. They're not really intelligence reactions. Because regardless of what you think of Biden, and even regardless of what you think of Zelensky as an individual, um, this is a cause that is important to support. Any attack upon a nation's sovereignty is something that needs to be repelled. And therefore, we've got to make a distinction between the principle of national self-determination and the way in which that principle is sometimes uh, uh, exploited by certain sections of the Western world and, and sometimes treated in a very cavalier fashion by others. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, just the, the necessity of um, separating the way in which Western powers are unquestionably using this conflict for their own ends and the importance of what's being fought over in the theatre itself, in that war itself, uh, particularly with the millions of incredibly brave Ukrainians whose perfectly normal lives have become something entirely different, where they are now fighting for the survival of their own nation. And I think that is absolutely something worth supporting one year on, as much as it was when the war started. In relation to that, I want to ask you about something you've written about a fair bit over the past year, including in your book, which is about, and I, you got a lot of flack for this when you first started raising it a, a year ago, uh, about the decline of the, the, the militaristic spirit or the willingness of people in Western societies to make certain sacrifices or to take up arms f to defend their nation. Let's just be brutal about it. Uh, and we can see this in in Western militaries themselves, you know, they're now more obsessed with using correct pronouns and respecting people's identities. You know, it was only a couple of years ago that the British army was advertising for snowflakes. It actually had an advert saying, we want snowflakes to join the army because we want your emotional intelligence. And you do wonder what people like Putin were thinking when they saw the British army advertising for snowflakes to join its ranks. Uh, we see similar developments in America as well, of course, the army there has become incredibly politically correct. I always think of the time in Afghanistan when um, one of the, their Navy men from the American Navy wrote a homophobic message on a, on a missile that was being fired at um, the Taliban, and he was reprimanded, and then they were started to police the messages that were being written on missiles. 
So you can kill members of the Taliban, but you can't offend them. That's I think that seems to be the lesson there. What role do you think that has had on people's understanding of what's happening in Ukraine? Without wanting to treat the Ukrainian people as something incredibly exotic and singular, there does seem to be a contrast between a sense of unwillingness in the West to put our necks on the line for the nation or things we believe in and the willingness of people in Ukraine to take up arms to fight against uh, their powerful neighbor. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't the militaristic spirit that I was extolling, but the warrior ethos. Yeah. <laughs> An ethos of, of basically demonstrating uh, a willingness uh, to fight for your interests, for your family, for your community, for your nation. Uh, because I think it's really important that uh, a society has always got a reservoir of courage that it can draw on to deal with uh, tragedies, unforeseen circumstances, not just simply to fight a war. And the thing that I was particularly concerned with is that that ethos, which is so central to the running of, of, of our society, was being gradually eroded on the mind and even made fun of in many, many respects, where uh, joining the military was seen as being uh, a dead-end kind of a job where essentially uh, people felt that uh, uh, wars can be fought by people that we like mercenaries or people that we pay off, you know, more or less fancy security guards rather than uh, being the responsibility of everybody within society, uh, particularly of the younger generations. And the thing that really bothered me was when you had this very uh, risk-averse and loss-averse kind of culture, a very one-dimensional loss-averse culture in the West, it does basically serve as an invitation to be attacked, to be terrorized um, by, by forces that will, will see this as an opportunity for them. And uh, there's two problems here. The one problem is that obviously it means that you become far less secure in military terms but the other problem is that, is that you create a society where essentially you have, a, you have people who really do not believe that anything is worth fighting for. And when you take that view of the world that there's nothing that's really worth fighting for, then what you're doing, in, in, in a sense, in a very insidious, unthinking way, is calling into question the very necessity for solidarity. And solidarity, this kind of cohesion, and that communities need to reproduce themselves is not an optional extra. We need it to, to thrive and to flourish. And if that, that goes, then what's at issue is not just simply the, the wars between nations, but what's at issue is how the communities go forward. Have you signed up to Spiked's daily newsletter yet? It's called Today on Spiked. Every day you'll get a roundup of all our content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. I want to ask about the, the nation state and national sovereignty. This is another thing that you touch upon a lot in your book on Ukraine. Um, that's something that has been incredibly devalued in Western society, in Anglo-American society over the past few decades, very much typified by the European Union, which is an institution almost singularly devoted to dismantling the idea of national sovereignty, or at least very much diluting it. Um, 
And I just want to ask you about what impact you think that has on how we understand the Ukraine conflict and how we relate to the Ukraine conflict, because obviously that is fundamentally a struggle of national self-determination by a people against an invading army. And so it does raise the question of whether the Western powers who are fairly opportunistically exploiting that conflict, whether they understand really what's at stake there, whether they care what's at stake there, and whether they would support what's at stake there in terms of the right of a nation to determine what happens with its own borders, who crosses them and who doesn't. That seems to be a value that they don't uh, take seriously in their own country. So it's not clear why they would take it seriously in Ukraine. And I think the question that raises for me is whether the solidarity that sections of the West are currently given to Ukraine could end up being a bit of a trap in the sense that it, it's, it seems to be based less on this fulsome defence of a people to defend their nation and more on this attempt to bring Ukraine into the post-national fold, into the European Union, perhaps at some point, into NATO, into institutions which are actually devoted in large part to the weakening of nationhood. So is there, there's a real contradiction there, isn't there, in terms of the solidarity offered to a people fighting for national freedom but it seems to be coming from powerful players who are not particularly interested in national freedom. How do you think that's likely to play out? Well, the, the problem you point out to is that what's driving a lot of the present geopolitical world is a powerful, almost imperial ambition on the part of many nations who have been bought into this globalist ideology that assumes that nation states are not particularly important. Uh, because the problems that confront us are global rather than national problems. That doesn't mean to say that you don't take your own nation seriously. America certainly does believe in American exceptionalism, that it's the head of, in a sense, it is, it's at the center of this uh, invisible empire that it tries to influence through culture, ideology, and economic, economic and military means. But by and large, there's a kind of, project uh, that people are in, in amongst the elites are pursuing that systematically devalues the nation states and its institutions. And that that is something that hasn't really gone away, although uh, at the same time, it, this, it's contradicted by the fact that they know that the only institution that they, like anybody else, can rely on is a nation state. You're not going to get vaccinations in a pandemic from the World Health Organization or some international institution, it's going to be your government that does that. But in relation to Ukraine, I think your instincts are absolutely right, because although they are, are defending the independence of Ukraine, it's a value that they are quite indifferent to. It's not something that they take particularly seriously. They're supporting Ukraine uh, in such a vigorous way, principally, in order to prevent Russia from gaining strength. They're supporting Ukraine in order to weaken Russia. They're supporting Ukraine in order to give them a certain sense of moral cohesion by being able to show the world that, look, we are the West. We speak with one voice. So many of the themes that are under, that underwrite the Western reaction to the Ukraine have got nothing to do with national sovereignty, but to do with a certain Western imperial outlook uh, in the way that the world should be run. And it just so happens that at this particular moment, that ambition converges 
with the necessity of the Ukrainian people to defend their national sovereignty. On on the question of Russia itself um, and the future of Russia, and I guess what we might refer to as the tragedy of Russia in terms of what Russia has, has become, I think it is, it's very interesting if you look at the history of the past 20 years or so, where we do seem to move quite violently from an attempt by Western powers to bring Russia a little bit more on board. Um, you know, it's not that long ago that someone like Tony Blair was talking to Vladimir Putin and there were efforts to bring the new Russia, the post-Cold War Russia, a bit more into the international community, as it's called. Um, at the same time, of course, NATO was expanding ever more eastward in Europe, which more sensible thinkers in the geopolitical sphere understood as unnecessary and a provocation and something that would at some point push Russia slightly over the edge. So there was a contradictory process where on the one hand, there was a belief that uh, Russia after the Cold War, after the Soviet Union could be brought more on board. But at the same time, there were these continual provocations, this goading of the bear in the East. And now Russia seems to have ended up in a position where it is the demonic power. It is the evil state maybe not the evil empire in the way that it was during the Cold War years, but it plays a particular role not only for Western establishments, but for the West's intellectual elites who often contrast themselves to Russia. So they will demonize Russia for its obsession with history, its obsession with power, its obsession with um, wanting to control its neighbors and so on. That tragedy of Russia, what Russia now is, how do you think that's going to resolve itself? Is that just one of those unknowable factors in relation to this? Because it does seem to me that that element in the relationship between the West and Russia could prove increasingly dangerous in the years to come. I don't think you can have an answer to this because there are so many uh, forces at play, often very contradictory, from the fact that uh, you know, Russia can implode from within. And if it implodes from within, its consequences are far greater than the war in the Ukraine because it will extend all the way to the east, all the way to Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Kazakhstan. I mean, all these areas will get uh, involved in, 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 in a major upheaval when Russia can no longer retain control over that region. We are already seeing a situation where uh, Armenia, which used to be protected by Russia, feels much more vulnerable towards Azerbaijan because uh, of the difficult situation that has been created there. Uh, you can see a situation where China, Turkey, and Iran are just moving into a vacuum that's being created there. So all those things are complicated by the fact that uh, it's unknown, you know, sort of whether it's going to, Russia's going to implode or just continue the way it is at the moment. Now, the one factor we haven't talked about and hasn't really been considered, is that it's all very well for the West to isolate Russia uh, and kind of create a quarantine around it in, in relation to Europe. But you have to remember, and this became very clear at the Munich Security Conference, that a large part of the world does not support the West in relation to this project. You know, Brazil, South Africa, Indonesia, India, China, I mean, large, large parts of the world, the majority of the planet's population is not really behind the West in terms of what's really going on there. And while this is really going on, there are other things happening in many, many other parts of the world that are going to have a 
at least an indirect, if not direct, bearing upon what happens in the unfolding of the existing situation. So the way that I look at it is that uh, we are in a, in a situation that is just as unpredictable as the decade before the outbreak of First World War. Before the outbreak of the First World War, nobody was sure who would be on what side. Italy only decided towards the very end to join uh, Britain and America and the French against, uh, against the Austrians. Beforehand, they were dithering about joining the Austrian side. If you look at Europe throughout the 19th century, you have these shifting opportunistic alliances. Nobody knew where they would end up because the, that's, the world patterns were unsettled. And that's the, that's the world we're in at the moment. And therefore, I think it'd be foolish for anybody to predict a specific outcome because you cannot take into account all these different factors that have been unleashed uh, in the post-Cold War period, but particularly since the, uh, since the invasion of, of Ukraine by the Russians. Okay, Frank, my, my last question for you, um, bearing in mind what you've just said about the folly of trying to predict what the outcome of this will be, particularly on, in, in the global sense, um, I just wanted to finish by asking you about what might be decisive in Ukraine itself. So I want Ukraine to be victorious in the sense that I want Ukraine to have its national rights and to have um, national self-determination. That's what the people of Ukraine want. That's what they're fighting very hard for. Um, you and I both, both believe in the independence of nations, the right of nations not to be interfered with by external powers. Um, so uh, that's what I would like to see happen. I would like to see Ukraine push Russia out of its borders and, and to um, re-establish its own national independence. Is there anything that could be decisive in that side of the conflict in terms of making that happen? Is it possible that one thing Ukraine needs to do now, which doesn't seem particularly likely at the moment, is distance itself a little bit from its proxy ex exploiters in the West, think about more clearly about what's at stake, what it's actually fighting for, try to manoeuvre itself away from the influences of external powers, even though it's relatively reliant on them for weaponry, what could be decisive within Ukraine itself? Or is that also unpredictable? Is it is it damned to be in this continual conflict because so many external factors and interests are now being projected onto it? Well, I think that's right. And I think the danger is that the uh, solidarity and the unity that Ukrainians have uh, demonstrated brilliantly all this time, a real example that that kind of solidarity and unity can gradually get unstuck as you have uh, different interests and you know, competing oligarchs within Ukraine itself all vying for influence and all vying for influence with different foreign powers. And what I'm really worried about is that, uh, because we don't see this at the moment, this is not something that's come to the surface, that underneath the uh, uh, the kind of appearance of unity underneath the fact that the you know, whole of Ukraine seems to be 120% behind Zelensky, that some of the, these kind of uh, understandable conflicts can begin to crystallize into uh, struggles for for power. And that's something that Ukraine hopefully can avoid and, and, and not allow itself to be damaged internally by what's, what's kind of really taking place. Obviously, I think the, the danger is, is that uh, being dependent on foreign arms is a, 
is a paradoxical, contradictory process because on the one hand, you need the arms, but in the very act of being dependent so much on what's happening outside of your control means that you are, in effect, losing control to some extent. It's very difficult to play the game in such a way that you both get what you want in terms of military hardware whilst at the same time retaining control over the flow of arms in, in, in terms of what's happening. And, and history shows that just as America could leave Afghanistan you know, without a minute's thought for what, what, what it's leaving behind, so too they can turn off the tap of uh, armed deliveries. And, uh, and therefore, I think that you know, we have to be uh, a bit concerned about Ukraine and the way in which its uh, dependent relationship to the West can become uh, its own Achilles heel. Frank Friday, thank you very much. Nice talking to you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.